Hello and welcome to another episode of the Far Post podcast. My name is Marissa and I am legally obligated to ask you if you remember the 21st night of September. Some of you definitely groaned and some of you definitely were like, that's good shit from Marissa. That's the Marissa we know and love. Anyway, I am joined once again, as I always am, by my own personal earth, wind and fire. It is Anna, Angela and Sam. And we thought that, you know, there was Euro qualifiers on this week. There wouldn't be that much to talk about, but some stuff's gone down. So um, let's crack straight into it. We will start as we do with your love to see it. Anna, what did you love to see this week? Well, Marissa, we love to see Artillies in action. Uh, we've given a lot of love to the ones playing in England at the moment, so we thought it was time to get around some of the ones who aren't. Um, specifically, uh, Jenna McCormick, a real fan favourite of the pod. Um, she hasn't got to play a whole lot of football just because of the coronavirus situation in Spain, but she came off the bench for Real Batiste as they beat Granada CF uh, 2-0. So great to see Jenna get a bit of game time. Um Another player who's been fantastic uh, over the past year, Kai Simon, uh, was actually named Player of the Week for PSV Eindhoven. So Matilda's doing well in Europe, on the continent. You love to see it. You do love to see it. And a very special you love to see it with our Michelle Heyman correspondent. Angela, what did you love to see this week? You love to see Michelle Heyman doing Michelle Heyman things. Uh, This past weekend, she scored a brace for Sydney University against Northern Tigers FC in the um, New South Wales Premier League. Um, Yeah, and and that was a game that has secured them the Premiership as well as the Club Championship. Um, Yeah, so that's my contribution to hashtag Heyman Watch this week, but I will defer to Sam, our resident New South Wales enough, to elaborate a little bit on that on that side of things. Yeah, no, Michelle Heyman's been great. Like the the, the sort of the uh, appearances that she's made for Sydney Uni have been extremely Michelle Heyman. The goals that she's scored have been extremely Michelle Heyman goals. Um, their Sydney Uni's uh, win against the Northern Tigers, which was the grand final in the New South Wales MPLW last year, which was an amazing game. Um, the other goal scorer was one Claire Wheeler, who you know, in my opinion, as I have mentioned in podcasts past. I really think that she should be on the Matilda's radar. So she scored an absolutely amazing goal. It was a pretty convincing win uh, by Sydney Uni over the Northern Tigers. But Sydney Uni have been amazing, and they've been amazing for a really long time. Um, Last season, they won all three trophies. The the vast majority of the players are uh, W League players, and so it's very, very likely that we see most of them uh, make an appearance in the W League this season as well. Uh, Sam, I think you forgot something there. Did I? What did I forget? What's the segment called, Samantha? Oh, you love to see it. You know what I love to see? Our Sam getting agents fees for Claire Wheeler because it's been three shows, three mentions. <laughs> if there is anyone who is a bigger fan of a player in our podcast land, we're yet to see it. Oh, my goodness me. All right, let's crack into some of the big news that has happened this week. So the search for a new Matildas coach is drawing ever closer. Harrow wrote about it for AAP during the week. Do you want to just give us a brief outline of where that's at? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Spoke to James Johnson, as you mentioned, for AAP last week, the FFA CEO. He said that it's not a hard deadline, but they're planning, they're hoping to have a new coach in place by the end of the month. And as you mentioned, Marissa, 21st of September, 
not that far away. Um, so end of the month, um, the idea is we're not going to have any camps for the Matildas in this current window or in October. The first window that our Matildas will come together will be in November under a new coach. So I think that's really exciting. That's going to be in Europe, bringing all those Matildas that are based in Europe together for the first time under a new coach. Um, he emphasised that it wasn't necessarily going to be an Australian or a foreign coach or whether it was male or female. They are just after the best candidate. Said so it's been very thorough. Um, they're really obviously at the back end of the process. They've got a shortlist in place. Um, and the other thing that was a little bit of an interesting tidbit was if they are in obviously in another role, for example, in Clubland, then there is scope to have that sort of transition period and then with a view to a four-year, effectively a four-year deal to cover the major tournaments um, to include two Olympics and Asian Cup and the World Cup on home soil with that coach to get through that transition period if they need one and then be focused solely on the Matildas. So I think there's a fair bit there and it's a pretty exciting place to be in, to be honest. I think we're all keen to see who it is and see this team start to kick on ahead of all these major tournaments that are coming in the next four years. I just want to, like, we haven't addressed this yet, right? We haven't addressed the Matildas coach search and it's been going on for a while and there have been a number of names thrown around. I think the shortlist is interesting and I think it's worth sort of digging into. I don't know if we really have time to do it now, but I think it's it's worth talking about who these people are and what they want and what they offer because I think, like, I haven't seen, I don't think Harrow has seen, I don't think anyone has seen the like basically like the rubric, like what this coach needs to, the boxes that this coach needs to be able to tick, like RFFA wanting someone who is capable of producing youth players, in which case that, you know, it's a big tick against that for, for Emma Hayes, for example, and also a big tick for Tony Gustafsson. But it's not really a huge kick for jo, a tick for Joe or, or a huge tick for, for Carolina Marace, which are sort of the four names that have been floating around. Or are we wanting someone who does have international experience? That you know, that's a tick for Tony Gustafsson, who was the assistant coach to Jill Ellis, and it's a tick for Carolina Marache. It's not a tick for Emma Hayes, and it's not a tick for Joe Montemurro. So, I like the weighting of all of these things interests me. I don't think anyone really has any insight um, outside of the people who are making the decision. But also, I, like, I don't think anyone really knows very much about Tony Gustafsson, and he's a name that I've heard increasingly over the last couple of months as someone who actually might be a really, really good fit. He supposedly was responsible for a lot of the sort of tactical um, and technical behind-the-scenes stuff with the U.S. women's national team. Um, he's supposedly beloved by the players. He he sort of is super wholesome in the culture that he tries to build. So I'd be fascinated to see what happens. And there's, you know, obviously there's been a couple of reports in the last couple of weeks about Marache, um, about her time when she was the head coach of the the Canadian women's national team. Um, And, yeah, like stuff to do with the FAWSL as well, like Emma Hayes and Joe, why would they want to leave their competition at the moment when they have such – amazing teams they're obviously being really successful so far um what kind of money is being offered you know it's a whole bunch of stuff so yeah anyway that was a ramble I'm sorry but I think it's it's worth talking about I agree Sam like it's it is one of the biggest issues in Australian women's football and what is this podcast about um other than our great catchphrases and uh women's football but yeah (laughs) I think that's a really interesting point we're from the outside, don't know exactly what these cl- criteria are. We don't know exactly what they're looking for. 
with a Joe Montemuro, for example, or an Emma Hayes who's worked with Sam Kerr. Joe's a good example because he's worked with a lot of the Matildas. Are you, are you looking for someone who can work with these players, who's well-liked by these players, um, who has a good coaching philosophy? There's, there's so much to take into consideration and you go, what are they looking at in terms of that international experience? As you mentioned, Sam, it's not something a Joe Montemuro has experience in, but w- would you put a team around him with a Melandretta and other sorts of people who have got that experience? So. There's a lot to think about um, with it all. But the thing that we do know is it's a crucial appointment. As um, James Johnson was saying to me, they want this person for the next four years. You want someone that's in for the long haul. And, yeah, FAWSL jobs are fantastic. Like, they, you know, they're right up there. They're the pinnacle of club football. But this is a pretty incredible opportunity as well. You get to, especially if you were an Australian coach or if you want a long-term project, you get to coach this team on home soil at a World Cup we're in this unique circumstance of to, of how many major tournaments are going to be coming up in a in a really short block. Like you look at it, you've got Olympics next year, then Asian Cup the next year, then World Cup, and then Olympics again. It's um it's really quite an incredible job, and you know you've got that four year period to work with. So it is going to be interesting. Um, Angela, just be interested to see if you've got any thoughts on um on the coach situation. I I mean I think. As you said, Anna, it is probably, for me, in my memory of following the Matildas, the biggest appointment, um, probably of our lifetime as well and of their lifetime too. As you mentioned, like World Cup on home soil, can't get bigger than that. Um, So (laughs) it's just me bringing the anxiety to the situation again. I'm like, we have to get this, we have to get this right. And as Sam noted, we don't actually – we as as fans and as followers of the game, we don't really know much about this decision while it's happening for obvious reasons. Um, but I would be re- like keen to be keen to know if there's going to be any sort of detail provided around the decision making process and that sort of thing. I do find in sport a lot of things are quite hush hush, and a lot of I'm always interested to know a little bit more about yeah the the inner workings of a particular decision because I think. We just want to make sure it, it sort of has to be perfect, which I do feel for the coach coming in because there will be so much pressure attached to that as well. So that will be an important character part of their character is, you know, competing under pressure and doing well under pressure. I think it's the one thing we can guarantee is that there's going to be a serious amount of questioning regardless of who the coach is uh, at the announcement. Like I, th- I think um, your James Johnsons and the like. So we'll be ready for that line of questioning. It's a huge appointment. It's one they've got to get right. And um, as Sam mentioned, there's some cracking candidates like Tony Gustafsson from from Sweden is a who's I think he is actually coaching in Sweden at the moment. Sam is um is a cracking example of a candidate that maybe the you know us here in Australia don't know so much about. But uh, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how it all plays out. It's uh, You'd have to think they're not too far away from this decision now. So I guess we just uh, watch and very nervously wait. I think I can comfortably say whenever that happens, we might do a special pod about it whenever that decision does happen to drop. But speaking of the Tillies coach, we did have a question come in from Twitter. So Anna, I'll pose it to you. Do you think the next Matildas coach might encounter any club v country issues with players now that they're getting paid more and invested into by clubs? And so this question's from Kieran. He uses the example of past Socceroos coaches having to deal with Harry Kuehl and the club v country debate. So what's your take on that? 
Yeah, I really like this question. It's one where I really had to hold back in terms of saving it for the pod. You guys nearly booted me out of the Zoom before, I reckon. Um, I think it is an interesting one because we know that the the Matildas players are getting more professional. They're in these um, club environments more often. Um, I think if you put aside things like Harry Cool in the Premier League is probably earning more than our girls playing there, which is a unique situation. I think we're, we're getting in a position where it's going to be easier and easier. Um, when the Matildas were all based, were majority based in the W League, I know Caitlin Ford was saying it was quite difficult for her and Sam Kerr when there was just a couple of them to go all the way to Asia, for example, for Olympic qualifiers. But now they're all based there. I mentioned earlier we're going to have camps in Europe, um, London or maybe you know, in Amsterdam or these sorts of options where our players, they're not going to be dealing with big, massive flights and jet lag on both sides. They're not going to have to deal with something our Socceroos have had to, for example, deal with, which is going away from your club, spending more than the normal international break amount of time away and then coming back. Um, I think that's something that can be a real issue in terms of club versus country. So when we're looking at that, I think we're in a pretty good spot in terms of the international breaks being respected. Um, yeah, there's going to be some situations where we've got to, I guess, deal with um, our players, you know, what's going to be best for club or country in terms of injury management and that sort of thing. But that's something that players around the world have to deal with in terms of those sorts of things. So in a very long-winded answer to that question, I don't think there's going to necessarily be more. There might be higher expectations from clubs. Um, but I think overall the balance should be pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, we will definitely be talking more about the Tillies coach as more information comes to hand. So we'll switch gears to WLE chat where there has been some more information coming to hand. We've had a couple more player signings. Laura Hughes has re-signed for Canberra United. She's Vicky Linton's second signing of the season. And Adelaide has announced a whole host of re-signings as well. So Charlotte Grant, Emily Condon, Dylan Holmes and Isabel Hodgson have all re-signed for Adelaide. Lots of youth, which we've discussed a few times on the pod now. It's interesting to see that they are relying on those NPL players. Sam, what's your take on it? Yeah, I'm really excited by what Adelaide are doing. Um, I think the reason that they haven't had much success in the past is because they have always done the youth thing, Um, whereas a lot of other teams, particularly teams that have tended to finish in the top four, have been the kinds of teams who've recruited Matildas and who've recruited really experienced international players. But now I think because we've had this exodus, because the possibility of having international players come to the W League this season seems quite slim. It almost feels like it's a natural equalisation measure. And so I'm really curious to see how Adelaide go against a team, for example, like Sydney FC, the vast majority of whom, of the squad that we know of so far, are under the age of 24. So... You know, I'm, I'm, I think probably my what my, my waters are telling me, what my gut's telling me is that all of the W League um, clubs are going to be recruiting in a similar kind of pattern. It's going to be really heavily relying on youth players, on NPL players, um, on sort of senior, maybe even former Matildas who've fallen off the radar in recent years because they've got a bit older or X, Y, Z. So I'm, I'm actually really curious to see how the season unfolds because it's going to be a real test of Australia's medal to see the kinds of players that we are actually producing 
And what's interesting about Laura Hughes re-signing for Canberra United, um, like she's a, a product of the Canberra United Academy, which is great. Canberra United have been known to produce a lot of young players to, to sort of bring them through to the W League level. Um, but the interesting thing to me is that she's currently playing in Iceland. And so she's already committed to coming back to play in Australia, to play in the W League. And so that suggests to me that as we, I think, addressed on the previous pod, that we may actually have a couple of Matildas who are playing in Nordic leagues who decide to come back to Australia um, to sort of help out these younger players as well. So, yeah, so sort of all the – like we're sort of – we're very anxious about this big exodus of Matildas, but like it's basically the starting 11 Matildas who we've lost, but there are still a number of players in and around that Matilda squad who may actually return to the W League this season. So, Going off that, we did have – a question from Van underscore Egmont's thoughts and feelings on what exactly is going to happen with Melbourne City women's this upcoming season. And I guess it's no secret that Melbourne City haven't invested in um, their youth in the same way that teams like Adelaide, Newcastle, Canberra have. Um, they do have some young players in the mix, definitely. Um, Chelsea Blissett is one that comes to mind um, and she's been – she started a few, a fair few games the past two seasons um, for City. But going off what you were saying there, Sam, about Matilda's possibly coming back. So on the one hand, I mean, I'm a bit of a City sceptic and I'm like, this is the great equaliser. But if we do have Matilda's coming back, I wonder if they're potentially just going to be poached <laughs> by Melbourne City um, or if we're going to see those um, more senior W League players who have a couple of seasons under their belt, such as your Angie Beards, potentially, um, and those who are currently playing in the NPL going over to City because they've got that, you know, that reputation, the way that they treat their players is, you know, renowned in the league, professionalism and yada, yada. So on the one hand, it's for me personally, it's like a real I could be your devil, I could be your angle situation <laughs> with the way that the W League is looking to... To um to be this season on the and I I don't I just sort of don't want City to get away with neglecting youth development. I sort of want there to be a bit of competition and to see those clubs who have been um investing in that side of things get reward for that effort and for that work because it is a really big and important part of Australian football and for things like the development of Matildas to have high-level clubs put in the time in. So that's that's my, my humble onion on that. But, yeah, um, Anna, what, what do you think about it all? Yeah, I think there's another factor that we've got to consider is um, it's going to be unlikely that, if at all, we see international players in the W League unless, you know, like there's the opportunity for some players, for some clubs, sorry, maybe to bring in internationals. But it's going to be quite difficult, especially with, say, America, with their um, coronavirus situation, our quarantine so I think the best players in the W League are going to be at a premium. And as much as it is nice to see, I'm going to devil's advocate you right back here, Angela, as great as it is to see young players who come through the ranks at um, teams go on and play a real role. I think Carly Ross is a great example at, at Canberra. I think if, if players see that the opportunity is elsewhere and they think this can be, this is how I can crack, you know, maybe a Matildas camp or take my game to the next level, I don't think they're going to shy away from maybe joining a city or maybe trying to join a team that can push them up the table. Um, it's going to be really interesting. Like 
I think if you're the best young prospects, there's going to be a real, maybe it's not a scrap, but there'll be plenty of competition to get these best players. And that could be a good thing for some of them to be in demand. Yeah, and I think a really good example of that um, that sort of theory, Harrow, is Emma Checker. Yeah, she I started thinking. Came across, she came across from Adelaide, you know, to join Melbourne City last year. She started every game. She was part of an historic double-winning side. They had the mm-hmm. most shutouts of any team in the in the league. Um, and she got a Matildas call-up. She played in the, in the friendly uh, against Chile. So that, that is absolutely a pathway, and I think that, you're right. I think the vacuum, both of you, what you said, that the vacuum that Melbourne City have now, because they have basically their entire starting 11 has gone overseas, none of them are likely to return. There is going to be an opportunity there for a number of players um, to capitalise on that and to go to Melbourne City and say, this is a professional environment. This is the environment that I have needed in order to take my game to the next level. And so it'll be interesting to see the kinds of players that City bring in and the way that they fit them all together, because effectively they have to start from scratch. Like they do have a couple of young players who've been in and around the fringes, but I remember writing a piece after the most recent W League season for ESPN, which was about the fact that Melbourne City, more than any other team, had players who were older and players who were more experienced at the international level. That's the reason that they were so successful is because they had this cream of the crop squad Mm -hmm. And because of that, they didn't give any opportunities really to any of the young players who were coming through because Melbourne City were too focused on trying to win championships and premierships and whatever. So, yeah, so it'll be interesting now to see how Melbourne City navigate that and how they go about recruiting this next crop of players to fill in that void. The other thing that's interesting with City and also Victory is um, because of coronavirus and our situation with lockdown here, there's not been an NPLW season. So if you think that... uh, your Melbourne cities aren't going to be looking at the best emerging or established talent from interstate. You've got another thing coming. Like, why wouldn't you? Like, you get to see the players that have broken through, that are making their mark, and, you know, at the end of the day, if your offer's the best, that's what you're going to get them. Just Three. want to give a mini boot to um, Sam saying shut out. Won't be having any of that on this podcast. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Terrible areas. Yeah. I'll cop that. That's fine. I'll cop it. <laughs> I sort of warned. Yellow card went off. Just wait till I say she got the the shot on frame. Then I'll really be booted from the chat. Go ahead, girl. The outside backs were really good. (laughs) This this has now descended into American soccer dialect bashing, which did not intend it. I was just not happy about use of the phrase shut out. But you didn't didn't stop it, Marissa. You didn't stop it. Well, because she was on a roll and I wanted her to make her point. I can I can wait for Thank the tellings off. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but um, so the, the development of youth is obviously one storyline that we're going to be paying a lot of attention to, particularly in the kind of immediate next W League season. But another storyline that we need to kind of keep an eye on is this independent leagues model, the unbundling of the A, W and Y leagues from FFA. We got a really interesting question about that and not going to lie, we had to have a chat about it off air because it's just a little bit of a a headache inducer. So Sam, you were very keen to broach this one, so I'll put it to you. The independent leagues model, is it a positive or negative for the W League or a messy middle ground? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And it's a question 
that I think all of football needs to be thinking about. Um, for context, for anyone who doesn't understand what's going on, which is the vast majority of people in football, I think, because even even our group chat had a, a little bit of a time uh, trying to get our head around it. So up until now, uh, Football Federation Australia has been running the professional leagues. So that's the A-League, the W-League and the Youth League, the Y-League. Um the clubs have been responsible for paying salaries of players, for recruiting, for doing all the sort of internal stuff that clubs need to be doing. But primarily the leagues have been run by FFA. They've been funding it. They've been the ones who have been responsible for sponsorships, for marketing, for broadcast deals, all that sort of stuff. But in recent years, the clubs have become quite um, uncomfortable and I mean, uncomfortable is sort of a polite way to put it, but they don't. They, they want more power. Effectively, clubs want to be able to determine the, the, their own destinies. They feel like they need to have more of a say in how the competitions are run because they are the ones who are responsible for providing the players. They're the ones who provide the content, and so they need to. They feel like they should have more of a say on how everything works, which is fair enough, right? So, what's happened is FFA have said, "All right." Here you go. Here are the keys. Go ahead. Go and see what you can do, and let's you know let's make all these professional leagues into the kinds of things that you think that you can do, and the things that you have promised to be able to do, because that's the only way that we've been able to give you the green light. So that happened last year. There was a the, the decision to unbundle, as James Johnson says, the leagues um, to unbundle them from FFA is currently in process. Um, I think there are still a couple of legal things to to iron out uh, properly, but then COVID hit, and I think that has has thrown a serious spanner in the works for a lot of clubs, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, particularly clubs like Perth Glory, um, who are standing down players, and clubs like Newcastle, who are looking to sell their club. So the idea now of independence as uh, of the professional leagues is, I think, up in the air. And FFA are wanting to make sure that the clubs in their uh, arrogance, perhaps you could say, uh, don't run professional football in Australia into the ground. And so the, the most recent update is that FFA are wanting to try and find a way to at least have some sort of oversight to still have a finger in the pie um, to, to make sure that the clubs don't ruin it. So... The, the sort of the larger conversation that we've been having has been primarily about the A-League <clears throat> because the A-League is the more lucrative league, it's the one that makes the most money, and it's the one that the W-League relies on for funding, really. Uh, W-League clubs rely on the A-League clubs um, for a whole bunch of different things. So when it comes to talking about the future of the W-League, we really do need to be paying attention to the future of the A-League um, and to the, the future of this independent model. So I, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, there are a number of examples around the world. I've written about this, I think, for ESPN as well, about um, the different ways in which leagues can be administered. So, for example, in the United States, we've got the NWSL, which is a good example of an independent league. Uh, it's run primarily as its own private entity. It still has connections to US soccer in some ways, but it's primarily its own thing. Um, whereas the FAWSL in England is run by the FA. So at the moment it's very similar to what we've got here with W League being run by FFA. Um, and, you know, there are a number of different variations and, and different sorts of ways that you can um, sort of dig into the details of that. But the, the pros and cons of it I think are worth talking about as well. Um, and I realise that I've been rambling a little bit, but 
ultimately, I, I think that it's, um, as James Johnson said, uh, an independent professional league or leagues is the next, effectively the next frontier of uh, a mature football nation. Um, the the governing body does not want to have to make all of the decisions on behalf of the professional league. They feel like they need to be able to hand the reins over to whatever organisation wants to take it over to run it on its own, like the Premier League does. The Premier League is its own private entity um, and it's obviously the biggest league in the world. So th- there are a number of different pros and cons that come from that. It can become uh, much more lucrative and much more popular by becoming independent, but at the same time, that requires all the clubs being on the same page. It requires all the clubs funding it correctly. It requires all the clubs, you know, coming to some sorts of compromises. Um, and at the moment, it just seems like a big old mess. Uh, and so we're sort of sitting on the sidelines as as W League fans and being like, well, you guys need to sort your shit out because our entire competition and all of our players and the livelihoods of all of our players relies on your decisions. So, yeah, that's sort of the long and short of it. Um, I, I, it's basically a messy middle ground. Absolutely. So we will obviously talk about that more as we find out more because it really is a, a situation that needs to be explained a bit more in its entirety. So I suppose after all of that, we'll have just a quick question uh, to, to recharge our brain cells. So we had one move... Uh, during the week, we had Jacinta Galavadarachi leave West Ham and move over to Napoli. Not alone, as I tweeted. Apologies, everyone, for that. It was a transfer to Napoli. Angela, what did you make of her move? Was it a surprise for you? To be honest, not not really. Um, Jacinta hasn't been getting substantial minutes at West Ham. Um, not this this season. She hasn't made a start or any made the team sheet this season and she didn't get that much time last season. I think she appeared in 11 games overall, to be fair, was cut short. So, you know, um, but I think, yeah, for her, it's probably at the stage where she needs to get serious about getting minutes um, and getting um, more game time under her belt because she has been, yeah, sort of been, been a fringe player at a lot of the teams or most of the teams she's been at recently, um, including, I would say, Perth Glory and City. So, yeah, hopefully, um, yeah, the move does good things for her and she's able to get out there a little bit more um, and make a bit more make a bit more of a name for herself because she is quite a hyped-up player um, and it would be good to see some of that hype come to fruition. Alrighty, so you've listened to us talk for a, a few minutes now. We know what you wanted to listen to, so let's get into it. The new national team kits were released not that long ago, and there was some controversy. So before we enter that, Angela, did you like the kit? Would you purchase the kit? Did you think it was cute? Um, I will not be buying one of these Kits, not the home anyway, just because I feel like the most recent SPEW kit has lifted my standards for what a good kit is. Um, and kits are expensive. It it also looks like it creases easily and it's just not – that's not the energy I want in my life. You know, I store my kits in a cardboard box in my wardrobe um, apart from my very, very, very special ones. So 
anyway, that's the fa- if that's the fate of the kit, it needs to not crease so badly as what this one seems to. This is taking a weird direction. Anyway, no, I would not buy it. <laughs> but it's not terrible. I, I don't think it's terrible. It's just sort of run of the mill. It's fine. What are your Sam, very special you kits? What are your very special kits, Angela? Oh, my very special kits. So I've got my <clears throat> Miedemar <laughs> Arsenal kit. <laughs> I've never worn it. Still got the tags on. Um, oh I've got, Extraordinary. Yeah, my 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 spear kit, um, the Lionesses kit. I think all of the ones that I bought last year at the World Cup, I think those World Cup ones, sentimental, but also I think – that I just want to keep them in good condition. The yeah, the red lionesses one is just oh, all time cod level. So nice. It is. It's beautiful. Yeah, I I, I won't be buying the kit either. Um, it gives me PTSD flashbacks to primary school sport. Um, I don't want to have a reminder of that every time I, I switch on the TV or or um, look in the mirror. So no, but I will be buying the shorts. I will be buying the green shorts. It is something that all of us have wanted for such a long time. That is the only thing that I'm here for. Um, but there, I mean, we don't even really need to talk about this, right? Like it's, it was, it's sort of insane that in this day and age, an organization as big as Nike will not do even a small run of women's cut away jerseys. And the, you know, I understand perhaps that the reason that they didn't do it is because traditionally women's cuts over away jerseys don't sell. And so according to their data, maybe they're sort of like, well, what's the point? Like, why should we do it if we're not, if we're just going to be losing money, right? But at the same time, when really has Nike ever made a really good Matilda's away jersey that we have all wanted to buy? I didn't want to buy the last one. I don't think anyone I knew wanted to buy the last one. And I, I don't really remember very many others that have sort of people have really wanted to, to purchase. So sort of a self-defeating argument, like it sort of circles back on itself in that way, if that, if that is the reason why they're not sort of selling the women's cuts. But it's positive that FFA are talking to Nike now that there has been this outrage about it. And what I love actually is that there has been outrage about it, you know, following, you know, that shows I think the impact that the spear kit 2.0 had people really are starting to give a shit about these kinds of things i don't think prior to spear kit 2.0 we would have had a conversation like this or a, a backlash as 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 big as this one when it comes to something like this so it just sort of it's a good sort of barometer i think of how far women's football has come just even in the last sort of two years that this is something that we're all talking about and they're all passionate about um, and also shout out to everyone who like on Twitter, on wherever, who made sure that you weren't attacking uh, FFA's social media person, but were actually, you know, addressing your concerns to Nike because they are the primary culprits in this, in this scenario. And David Manuka at FFA is a friend of the pod. We adore him. He is not responsible for any of this, but he has to cop all the bullshit. So thank you to everyone who, you know, didn't abuse him, but instead abused abuse Nike because that is absolutely where the abuse should be headed. Yeah, don't shoot the messenger. Um, and as you said, Sam, very cool that people actually address that and say, this isn't about going for you. This is about our issue. Um, the other thing you mentioned with the the Matilda specialist kit last year was how many men and boys wanted it. And it was a Matilda's only kit. Um, and that was something that I know aggrieved a lot of people. They went, oh, this run sold out. This run sold out. And they were relatively limited runs, I think. Um, so it showed that there's a market for Matilda's kits. And 
yeah, as my ongoing uh, niche gripe goes that I can't get a Matilda's baby kit for my niece, um, I can jump on the Nike website and get a baby Netherlands kit, Croatia home or away, England home or away, um, France. Um, yeah, so, you know, like there's clearly options in terms of runs and that would have been a shipping thing, but just do a limited run, do it on pre-order. Like there's a way to make these things happen at the end of the day. Like you can order just about anything on the internet. Like just get some women's cut of these away kits. Sam didn't let me say, but I'm probably not going to be buying either of them uh, either. Uh, for me, the the home kit, too similar to the 2014 slash 2015 all-conquering kit, but not quite as good. Uh, the away kit just didn't really tickle my fancy. Um but, yeah, I think, unfortunately, whatever you felt about the kit, it's been overshadowed by this whole situation. Um, and, yeah, it was just such an avoidable thing. And I, I felt for um, the FFA team as soon as, you know, it got tweeted about and as soon as it started getting attention because by the next day it was getting talked about in London. It was getting talked about on US Twitter. And when I say, like, London, I'm talking, like, Aussies in London, that, are, for example, that are not soccer fans. <laughs> like, it was going everywhere. And what do you think of the kit, Marissa? Have- uh, you'll you'll be shocked to know that I was very enthused by the um, green shorts. Yes. So I would just like to, I suppose, formally say uh, full hearts, green shorts, can't lose. And that's it. <laughs> um, but, no, on, on a more serious note, I think you mentioned it or you kind of started on it when you said how special last year's Women's World Cup specific kits were. That was such a huge step forward and a huge mark of progress for a lot of these teams. And in a weird sort of way, it was a tangible way of saying, we now value the women's game. We see that there is both, you know, commercial value and I suppose more intangible sentimental value in investing in these teams. So it really did feel like a step back to then just completely not have the away kit in women's sizes. Like it really did feel like a smack in the face kind of thing because you you can't go forward and then go two steps back and that's a little bit what it felt like. So I think it was good to see that people cared. I think it's good that we've, you know, cottoned on to the fact that, no, this is now something that we need to just continue doing. We need to, once you progress forward, that's it, that door's closed, we keep moving forward, we're not going back to, you know, having only men's kits and, you know, the women having to drown in these oversized jerseys and whatnot. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to actually, like Marissa, I think the, the piece that you wrote for the Matildas website was a really good um, encapsulation, I think, of this whole conversation. Like it it meant so much to you and it meant so much to so many people who took the the time to go and buy a kit and who understood the importance of that moment of being recognised, of being seen, of having a, a, a global brand like Nike look at you and say, yes, this is something that we want to do for you. It's not something that's a derivative. I mean, even though the sort of the, the style of it, the pattern of it sort of was, but it's it's for you. And I think that meant so much to so many people, particularly people who had been following the Matildas for such a long time, who, as you say, had seen them having to wear, you know, extra large hand-me-down jerseys over the course of several major competitions because they never got their own go. Um, and I, I think also it's, it's a sort of, it's an interesting insight into Nike, the fact that they didn't anticipate 
something like this is interesting mm. to me. A brand that is as big and all-conquering in the sporting market as Nike, underestimating the women's sport market, you know. And, and I think Nike, of a lot of the sort of the sporting brands, tends to be quite um, progressive when it comes to these kinds of things. They tend to be sort of... Uh, very aware of the the trends and the community's sort of desires and and where they're sort of heading. So it's interesting to me that they've completely missed this almost by not not even deciding to do a, a women's cut of this of this kit. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I like it's overall. I mean, I think the it's in, it's almost encouraging in a weird way because it, it does show that the women's game is growing in in Australia, which is something that we need. So I think it's, you know, I've always been a fan of yelling on the internet when you're unhappy with something. So I'm very glad that the women's sport community or the women's football community in Australia has taken to that in numbers uh, and has decided to express their concerns because it's it's working, you know, and this is this is sometimes how we can create change. This is how we get people to listen. So, yeah, um, continue to do what you're doing, Twitter. I'm a fan of it. I know this isn't the point because, it, as we've discussed, this is all about I guess the inclusion of women and the omission of not having a women's cut in the away kit for a shared Matilda Socceroos kit, we don't need to rehash that. But I'm sort of like, does this mean I have to buy the away kit if they do release it in a women's <laughs> cut? Because we've all been yelling <laughs> on the internet about needing the away kit in a women's cut. You know what I'm saying? I know that like mm. the answer is no, you do not need to buy the away kit, Angela. That's not the point. But also I'm like, I don't want to give Nike a reason to do it again. No. Anyway, <laughs> just an aside. But, yeah, Anna, what what did you have to say about that? I just felt like – I just felt like – just to sort of round out what we were saying, it just felt like we were past this. <laughs> like, yeah, it just totally. felt like these are the conversations we were having years ago when it was just me and Sam maybe not knowing each other, yelling at each other on the internet. I just felt like we were past it. Like there wasn't something that we even had. Like it wasn't even something that we had to think about anymore. Now we had these kits. Like you just assume, oh, yeah, you get the men's kit. You know, like there'll be a men's cut and there'll be a women's cut like you do like if you were buying a T-shirt on the internet. Like yeah. you wouldn't even have to think about it. I think I think that was it. It was, it was the fact that we'd gone, you know, like it's a very normal thing, but also that we'd gone so high with the um, with the Matilda specialist kit and being able to get it cut in men's and women's and it being a specialist kit and also just being able to buy pretty much any clothes now in with a women's cut if you want it. That it's just it was just so unexpected that it was like jarring to read that you mm. couldn't actually get it. I think that was maybe what it was what resonated with me, but it probably re- resonated with other people too. That you just went. You can't what? <laughs> like, yeah. like in this day and age, yeah. like come on, in, yeah. in this economy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm. I'm. The, I am glad though that it, the feedback has been taken on board and it seems to be going somewhere. Still don't know if I'm going to buy the away kit, but I'm just glad that people should have the option to. And uh, something that uh, yeah, probably should have always been the case. Now, hopefully, can be for those people that. Really love the Awaker because people who liked it loved it. That's uh, where it's at, and hopefully there is positive news to come out of it. Ideally, you know, we do. People are able to buy the kit in a women's cart, but in an even more ideal situation, we didn't have to go through all the hoo ha to get there. In case you hadn't figured it out, that was our boot of the week. That's an, <laughs> an extra long boot. That's a thigh high 
boot. Um, and there's also, I suppose, a secondary boot. FIFA had their, um, what do you call it, Congress meeting uh, recently and they once again tried to suggest making the Women's World Cup biennial, so every two years. It's a firm no from everyone on this podcast. Stop it. Just no more. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to preface this by saying I've had a couple glasses of wine. So, the suggestion of moving the Women's World Cup to every 2 years. Like it is okay. So, it's insane. But also, when we think about the global landscape of women's football, where is the money? Because this is what FIFA's thinking about, right? Where is the money? Where what is the thing that makes us the most money in women's football? It's international football. Women's football has been about national teams for a longer time. And I think the Women's World Cup, they, I think FIFA have looked at the success of the 2019 Women's World Cup and said, we want more of that. So even though we've got this emerging frontier for the women's game in club football, particularly in Europe, the international game is where it's at. It's where the most money can be made. It's what the, the most people watch, the most people attend. And so I think primarily the reason why FIFA are sort of constantly banging on this World Cup every two years drum is because it's going to be the thing that makes the most money. But even in saying that, you know, sort of thinking critically about it, if you make it every two years, it's going to dilute it. It's going to make it less special than what it currently is. Like the fact that it's every four years makes it something worth saving up for, worth planning for. It, it, it justifies its own hype. If you've got it every two years, it makes it sort of routine. It makes it boring. And therefore, it's going to defeat its own purpose. Not not as many people are going to turn up. Not as many people are going to watch. They're going to lose more money. And so it just it seems like a, a feedback cycle of failure. So that's my thought. Like, I'm still agreeing that it's a terrible idea. But, like, that's me trying to put myself into FIFA's shoes and be like, why are they actually suggesting this? Sam, what do you reckon the chances are that if they brought in more money via a biennial World Cup, the uh... – the women's players would get the equal prize money because uh, I just don't see it happening. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Harry, if we're ever going to see that happen. To be honest, uh, I'd love to. I'd love for it to happen. I think the messages that teams like the Matildas and the US Women's National Team are sending by going and having these lawsuits and using their unions to try and send a message to FIFA about you know equal pay, equal prize money is great. I don't think we're ever going to get there because we just don't live in a world where equal pay, even for women outside of football, is a thing. So yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be a whole it's gonna be a whole shebang. Well, with that answered, I reckon biennial World Cup gets the boot. It gets the boot. Big boot. Yeah. Anyway, on the depressing note of FIFA, FIFA never <laughs> you know doing well uh, equal pay. Because that's a fun thing to think about. Let's move to something more positive. Let's talk about some things that are good. How good? Angela, take us away. Um, so I have two how goods this week. Um, first of all, the footage of Loz Brock being reunited with her dog Ella, who had a big trip over to France. Oh, my goodness. I was <laughs> on the verge of weeping. I just – it's just – you know, dog, dogs and owners reuniting. It was just so sweet, so lovely. And the other how good, I was, it was just nice. The other day, um, FFA put up a replay of the Australia-Brazil match on, I think it was the 19th of September, 
2017. Anyway, um, and I, it just made me reminisce about attending that particular game and it was just such a lovely time. Um, it was the first time that I met Sam as well um, and at the time I was um, reporting for the women's game but still very shy. I, I'm still pretty shy. But anyway, it was it was sort of like mum-daughter energy though because I had to go and take photos of people before the game and capture the atmosphere to pop on Instagram. And I, Sam had to be like, can you get a photo with my friend? My friend wants to take a photo of you. Where I was like, <laughs> yeah, I take a photo of you. Thanks. It's going on this Instagram. Follow us. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was great fun. Um, and, yeah, I just – I miss that. I miss traveling interstate for Matilda's games that morning. I'd actually, so I went to a friend's 21st the night before. So I was really rusty and had to catch the Murray's bus up to (laughs) Sydney from Canberra. Oh, bad areas. And then I was catching the 5am flight the day after back to Melbourne from Sydney. It's just, but there's, you just carry yourself and your own energy when you go into a Matilda's match. And that was such like a symbolic and culturally significant match with the sellout crowds. And I think a real turning moment for a lot of people um, following the women's game. Yeah, just a magical to be there. And just so That was my health. Good. Sorry, Angela. Just because we were touching on like kit chat, like that was the day where we saw the young guy with a Sam Kerr kit he'd made himself. Um, where he yes. you know, like he'd drawn the Kerr 20 on the back. It was awesome and Sam loved it. I think it might have been a Lucas Neal kit that he turned into a Sam Kerr one. Um, it was. Which, so it's just a, I think that's when we look back at kits. I think that's a real turning point. That was one of my first games. I think it might have actually been my first game, Matilda's game, Bardo's Ballarat Friendlies, where I did some MCing that I covered when I was at Fox Sports um, up in the press box um, for a sellout crowd. And before I'd gone, uh, drove with Anna Dong and photographer Joseph Myers and uh, our mate Tom, friend of the pod, all friends of the pod. Um, Shout out to Tom. In the other room. Um, my <laughs> housemate. Um, he locked in the bathroom. I love <laughs> Look, to be honest, he uh, probably offers more suggestions than Melon. Just. Um, Melon's main one being, let me back in this room. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, I just thought it was just a fantastic moment and I, I love that you brought it up, Angela, because I think when you suggested it, we all just went, yep, that was the day. That was the day we arrived. That was the day where everyone, they might have heard a little bit about the Matildas, but that was when everyone started paying attention. They went, Sam Kerr, backflip. We want Sam Kerr. We want this. We want that. We love the Matildas. They're the best. It was just the best atmosphere. And, uh, yeah, I think that was the moment they really arrived. Yeah, I I have so many fond memories of that game and majority of it is for what happened off the pitch. Like like most, I think, people, like everyone in this chat, like it was because I was with my friends because I was in a community that felt like we really were there for women's football and I hadn't really been in an environment like that before. And when I think about, like I've talked about this quite a lot in my writing and on Twitter, when I think about my football moment, like my formative football moment, the reason that it was so important to me is not because of what happened on the pitch. It's because I felt like I was part of something. And I think for so many people, not necessarily even just young girls, which women's football is often marketed at, but for so many young boys and for so many people generally, I think that game was their football moment, 
particularly people out in the sort of western suburbs mm. of Sydney who perhaps had never had access to something like that before. That was a moment for all of them to feel like women's football could be a space that allowed them to be part of something bigger than themselves. And that's so important when it comes to not just football, but sport. That's the thing that sport is so good at. It's allowing us to break down our sort of barriers of isolation and to form connections with other people and to form these wider communities and to gravitate around something that we all adore. Sport is still something that brings us together, like it's doing on this podcast right now, even though we're all zooming in I'm from I'm in Sydney you three are in Melbourne even though we're all socially distanced it's still something that we all gravitate towards it's still something that we love and that's what was so important to me I think about that game because it was that moment for so many other people as well and it's it's really important I think that it it was women's football that did that for those people like my football moment was men's and I think a lot of women's moments in football was men's because we didn't have access to games like this mm. back in our in our sort of our formative years, that like those are the those are such important moments for so many people, and I think that we haven't almost it's almost like we haven't really reckoned with it yet how actually really culturally important that moment was for the growth of the Matildas, and yeah, so that that game was a, a really important I think um, sort of culmination of all of those different things. So yeah, I'll, I'll never forget it. It was so important to me. How good? How, how good? good? Oh, good. <laughs> we know we love the Tillies, but we also love our friends across the ditch, one more than any other. Um, Ellen Riley, our World Cup friend, our Kiwi friend, uh, all-round legend. Um, congratulations to Ella, who has actually just picked up a job at New Zealand Football as part of their communications team. Honestly, I don't think we can think of anyone who would do a better job, who's more in tune with New Zealand football and Australian football and just about any football, to be honest. Absolute legend, friend of the pod, great mate of the pod. We'll have to get her on here sometime so you can all appreciate her just as much as we do. Congratulations, Ella, and well done, New Zealand football. You've made, yeah, you've made a stellar choice here. How good. How good. How good. I love it so much. All right, that is a bumper episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. Remember, you can find us on all the usual podcast places and it is really helpful if you subscribe and like and review because it's just better for you honestly you get the podcast straight in your feed it just makes sense we will catch you all next week i know how's my my salesman ship anyway, we'll see you next week it's gonna be great we'll catch us all there that was a high pitch one <laughs>